Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are a good and gracious King, and we indeed come before you this morning with nothing in our hands to offer you a God who has no unmet needs. But we're grateful that you have created us in your image for your glory, for relationship with you. And you provide everything we need for that and for every day. Lord, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for those who've come before us in the history of the church to help us understand your word more clearly. And Father, now as we go to your word, I pray that we would learn from you as the Spirit enables us. Lord, we don't want to be just informed, but transformed. So help us now in this, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are off to a great start in our Reformation Conference this weekend. I've been so grateful for those who've contributed thus far, for Those of you who've been part of this and are part of it now, it's been so rich and so helpful. If you got a booklet, how many of you have booklets from uh, the Reformation Conference? All right, never mind. Uh, Let me just read this to you. This is my summary in the Reformation booklets that, uh, do we have more of those? Yeah? Larry? Larry? has a whole box of them. You look like Santa Claus, Larry. If, you, if you'd like a Reformation book, would you raise your hand? Some inf- but let's listen to this description of our time together this morning in this message. Justification is the article by which the church stands and falls. That sounds like it must be an overstatement. But if we understand that whether the church stands or falls depends on how well she understands the gospel, we will see why Luther said this. To be made right with God through the imputed righteousness of Christ, righteousness that is put on our account, in other words, by faith alone, without contributing anything of our own merit, is indeed at the heart of the good news of the Christian faith. Those who know that their only role in their salvation is to rest trust, lean, and depend on the full sufficiency of Jesus will be able to sing with assurance and humility, nothing into my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, understood this truth in a way that saved his life. He was a very religious man, a monk, a man who he said, if you wanted to find somebody who was doing it all right from a religious perspective, I was your man. But he was terrified of God because he didn't understand justification by faith alone. And he had a conversion. He went from darkness into light. Here's how he described that. Finally, God took pity on me. While I was meditating day and night and examining the implications of the words, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
I began to understand that the righteousness of God here means the righteousness which God gives and by which the righteous lives if he has faith. Immediately, I felt myself reborn. That sort of understanding is essential. It's at the very heart of the gospel, the very heart of the life of the church. If we don't understand this, we don't understand what it means to be a Christian. We don't have relationship with God. The just shall live by faith. Uh, We have been preaching through the book of Genesis, and I preached a few weeks ago on Genesis 15, and I told you that was part one, and I was going to preach part two this week. And that's what we're really doing. We're really not taking in this sermon a pause from our Genesis series. I want to leap to the New Testament treatment of the life of Abraham this morning in Romans 3 and 4. But I want us to realize that what God does for us in Christ wasn't something completely new. It was actually the fulfillment of what he had been promising ever since Adam and Eve had rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden. He promised that there would be a day where the seed of the woman would come and he would bruise the serpent's head and he would fix this massive problem called sin that human beings have gotten themselves into. And that's brought through the the great saints throughout the Old Testament and then in Jesus and then the apostles we see this fulfillment of this work that God promised would come to pass. It's What's described in Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. It's what is described in Galatians 3, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Those who are by faith the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham exhibited faith in his life by leaving his homeland when God said, leave, and I'm not telling where you're going, you just trust me. And at times he did waver in his faith, but he becomes for us an example of overarching truth of his life is that he trusted God. He believed God. He took him at his word. And he becomes an example to us. And we become sons of Abraham, it says. Anybody learn that song when you were a kid? Father Abraham. Everybody. Go, Narcissus is even. Could you stand up and do them? Come on, Narcissus, stand up. Come on, you're going to be a lawyer. You've got to be able to do these kinds of things. Come on, come on. Yeah, stand up. No, they can't see you. I'll sing, you do it. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Thank you, Narches. You're, you, that was a manly thing of you to do right there. It was. It was. Um, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And then the big clincher in the song comes, and I have one of them, and so are you. Yes, I'm one of them. I'm a son of Father Abraham. How? I'm not Jewish. I... I didn't practice old covenant laws. So how am I a son of Abraham? By faith. We're sons by faith. That's the essence of Abraham's life, his faith in God and God's promises. We're sons of Abraham. It's amazing. Now, 
this is all completely meaningless to you if you don't think you need justification. See, the big debate in the Reformation that happened 500 years ago is are we saved by faith or by faith and what we do, what we contribute? That was the big debate. Maybe that's not your dilemma. Maybe your big concern is how am I made right with God? Is it by faith or by works? Maybe That's not even a question you ask. Maybe the dominant questions of your life are things like, I wonder if I can get into college. I wonder if I should go to college. Maybe that's the dominant question of your life. I need to get a job. How am I going to pay my bills? I need a girlfriend. How do I get a... I, I want a spouse. Boy, I sure wish we could have kids. How are we, are we going to have kids? How do I get a promotion? I need a promotion. I need a better job. I wonder if these health problems will ever go. I wonder if this marital strife will ever actually get to a good place. I wonder if I'll have friends that I can really trust. Those are great questions. And I don't want to minimize the burden that those sorts of concerns can bring to our lives. But those questions are completely insignificant, peripheral, relative to the question, how can I be made right with God? Maybe all those other kinds of questions so fill your daily concerns that the very most important question isn't something you give much thought to. And I want to encourage you to think about what your life is ultimately about. It's not about those details. And as as important as some of those things are I just listed, they're details compared to your relationship with your Creator. They're just details. The question is, how may I be made right with God? Maybe you have thought about that question. And you think the answer is really simple and it's done. Maybe you think it's an absurd question. Of course I'm okay with God. Me and God are like this. You know, I know God. I love God. What do you mean, how do I be made right with Him? What are you talking about? I don't have any problem with God. I don't have a beef with God. Justification. What does that even mean, made right with God? I'm fine with God. Do you know what R.C. Sproul says? He says, I'm concerned that in 21st century United States culture, the big problem is, are we justified by, is not, are we justified by faith or by works or by some combination? Because most people believe that we're justified by death. You just die and you go to heaven. The vast majority of people in our culture believe that. Just listen to them talk when a loved one dies. I just know she's singing with the angels right now. And, and I just know he's looking down at me. And oh, God needed another angel. And we throw all these things out without ever seeming to think about, well, why is that just an assumption? There's a basic assumption that to finally be with God, all you need to do is die. Without ever asking, why do we die? It seems awfully tragic to me. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. You might want to try to dress death up like just a circle of life. 
I'm just doing a lot of singing this morning. Isn't this great? Yeah. Um, no, it's not the circle of life. It's a tragic result of human sin against God, rebellion against God. And in Romans, it starts off right out of the gate by making sure we know we've got a sin problem and we're not right with God. Unless God does something drastic and miraculous and that only He can do, we will die in our sin. We're not naturally right with God. We don't just die and go to heaven as a natural course of things. Actually, it requires a radical, miraculous work of God for this situation to change. The wages of sin is death. Romans begins in chapter 1, verse 18, making sure we understand this. Romans 1.18 says this, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He goes on to say, God has given all the evidence they need to know He is real and powerful and they need to answer to Him. But that's not how human beings respond. What do we do? Verse 23, We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles, reptiles, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's our problem. Oh, sin is an ethical thing. Unrighteousness is a moral category, but fundamentally it's a worship problem. We're worshiping ourselves instead of the God who made us. We're worshiping the works of our hands instead of the God who made our hands. And that's a great offense to a holy God. And so we've got a serious sin problem. And then in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul continues this effort to impress upon us the depth of our problem that we need a righteousness that we don't have. Look at verse 9 of chapter 3 of Romans. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. And he knows that right now you're going to think of your saintly grandmother. And he says, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Yeah, but what about no? (laughs) Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And here's the big problem. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is bad. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks, oh, I'll fix the problem. I'll just do what God says. No, we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that in every mouth may be stopped. God says a massive shut up to the entire human race here. And the whole world may be held accountable to God with no excuses, no rationalizing, no blaming. No. We're all accountable to God, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's as bad as it can be. We are not right with God in our fallen, natural human condition. We are not justified in his presence. We are not declared in a good place before him at all. It's just the opposite. 
children of wrath is how we're described in chapter 1. We, we deserve the just judgment of a holy God. So maybe that's the idea you need to come to terms with this morning, that you actually need justification. And if you are one of those people sitting there who knows you need it, well, then how does it come? How do you get it? How is it attained? And what we do out of our fallen instincts is immediately look at ourselves and how we are going to then go about solving this problem. That's what we do. We immediately run from sin to duty, as Stephen Charnock says. We think the solution to our unrighteousness before God is more righteousness that comes from me. And the radical realization of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that's not how it works. That's not what happens. And I don't care if you actually do get the gospel. I do care. That's a bad way to put it. I'm glad you get the gospel, but uh, whether or not you do get the gospel, whether or not you've gotten it for decades, it doesn't change the fact that you still need to hear this gospel message this morning. Listen to what Martin Luther said about this very idea. He said, every week... I preach justification by faith to my people because every week they forget it. (laughs) Every week we need it. We need to be reminded of the gospel. This is one of the most freeing things I realized as a preacher years ago that everybody basically needs the same thing. The good news of salvation in Jesus Christ by faith alone. That's what we need, every one of us. We need to hear this message over and over again because we forget it. We forget it. And so if you do know you need God to do something, how does that happen? Is it what I do? Is it what God does? Some combination of those two things? And we need to realize that it's God who does this. He brings the solution. Look at verse 21. Thank God for this. Listen. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, shown, displayed. Apart from the law, what we do, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, It's not a whole brand new thing. It's a fulfillment of an old thing. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Believe. Trust. Depend. Rely. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, made right by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, one who satisfies God's righteous anger towards sinners. He satisfies it. He removes it. It's not that God isn't angry towards sin. He most certainly is. There was a preacher years ago who had a a, a nationwide tour he did, and the name of the tour is God's Not Mad. And I had a friend who wanted to have a tour that he started at the same time called God's As Mad As Hell. <laughs> because the solution is not believing God's not mad. 
The solution is believing that he took that anger and judgment towards sin and directed it to himself in his son on a cross. It's a transfer of righteous anger away from us to his son. Oh, God hates sin. Of course he does. Don't you? And he's angry about sin, aren't you? But what does he do with that? He, in his love and grace, sends his only son to become one of us, to represent us in his perfect life of righteousness and perfect sacrificial death on a cross. And God directs that righteous anger toward Jesus. That's the solution. God does this. It's the righteousness of Christ. It's the perfect sacrifice of Christ that does this. A great salvation has been accomplished outside of us. Before anything takes place within us, it's accomplished outside of us. Luther calls this alien righteousness. This wonderful gift given to the one who has faith in Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, verse 25, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because his divine forbearance had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might, listen to this, let this have the weight it deserves so that he might be just, the holy righteous one, and the justifier of the one who does everything right. No, of the one who goes to church every Sunday. No, of the one who never committed really bad sins. No, the one who was baptized or the ones who took the Lord's Supper. No, the one who has faith in Jesus. Oh, don't despise the simplicity. This is a problem here. There's a simplicity in here that we can have disdain for. Come on, you're telling me that all I do is nothing but rely, nothing but trust completely. I don't contribute anything to this. That's right. It's by faith. It's by faith. He goes on, verse 27. What then becomes of boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised, the Jews by faith, and the uncircumcised Gentiles through faith. Do we then overthrow this law by faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. It's by faith. This is an awesome thing. This is the most freeing thing in the world. We hated it first. I think this is the offense of the cross. The cross is offensive because it's a naked, bleeding man publicly executed. Oh, that's offensive. But that's not nearly as offensive to proud humans 
as this idea that on that cross, what's actually happening is God is completely providing for you what you could never provide, which means you don't contribute anything to your salvation. You don't earn it. You don't prove it. You don't demonstrate yourself worthy of it. You don't work it off. Not even a fraction of 1%. God doesn't save you almost entirely. He saves you completely. Anybody who's truly saved from their sins and declared righteous by God has been radically and miraculously saved, even if you don't have a story of 10 years on Skid Row. You've been radically saved as much as anyone who's truly right with God because of Jesus. It's by faith. This is the great equalizer. This is the level ground. This is why among the people of God, we are all on equal ground at the cross. The ground at the foot of the cross of Jesus is completely level. No, not literally. Probably was quite rocky and bumpy. But, you know, I'm talking metaphorically right here. Yes, it's completely level. There's no one who comes to Christ with even a little bit of merit. It's just faith. It doesn't even have to be a massive amount. It just needs to be a simple recognition that I can't do it anymore. I can't win God's approval, earn the affirmation and the justification before a holy God. I need him to do that for me. And he's done it in Christ. Not I, but Christ. Christ in my place. That's what this is. And that's what trust in him is. It's leaning all our weight on him. Not depending on ourselves any longer for anything. Do you know, in just chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, faith is is mentioned nine times. In the chapter of Romans 4 that unpacks justification by faith alone, grounded in Abraham's faith as the example that we have too, justification by faith is talked about 13 times. This becomes this central realization that we trust God and everything changes. Everything is different now. This faith is something that that isn't God does his part, I do my part. Meets us halfway, 50-50. It's not 90-10. It's not 99-1. It's God. See, faith is not this. Leaning on the promises of God. Faith is not even this. Faith isn't even this. It's more like this. That's it. This is faith, people. I'm just here, trusting, right? That's faith. See, I'm still doing some of it if I'm even doing this, right? Faith is just, I wave the white flag at my own self-sufficiency. I don't contribute a thing to this except my need, Calvin called faith an empty vessel we bring to God to be filled. That's what we have in him. He gives us this amazing faith that we then exercise in this way. Listen to, listen to Luther. Let's hear from Father Martin right here. Um, there he is. Martin! Big German dude. Those are my people. Right. So... Um, Listen to what he says. I want you to listen to what he says, but I want you to listen to how he says it. Some of you may be sitting there, it's all these reformers. I don't care about Martin Luther. I just want to hear the Bible, right? Well, why are you here? I'm talking, right? So uh, 
that's how God does it. I want you to hear what Luther says, but I want you to hear how he says it. None of you talk like that, I'm sure. Um, listen to what he says. This is in his great chapter, Two Kinds of Righteousness. Listen. There are two kinds of Christian righteousness. The first is alien righteousness. That is the righteousness of another instilled from without. This is the righteousness of Christ by which he justifies through faith. Now listen to his method of arriving at these conclusions. The reason we're listening to Luther is because he listens to God in his word. Before there was a concordance on the planet, before he could look it up on his phone, he's just cut him he's bleeding bible all over the place listen for as it is written first corinthians 1 whom god made our wisdom our righteousness and sanctification and redemption in john 11 christ himself states i'm the resurrection and the life he who believes in me shall never die later he adds in john 14 i am the way the truth and the life this righteousness then is given to men in baptism whenever they are truly repentant therefore a man can with confidence boast in christ and say mine are christ's living doing and speaking his suffering and dying mine as much as if I had lived, done, spoken, suffered, and died as he did, just as a bridegroom possesses all that is his bride's and she all that is his, for the two have all things in common because they are one flesh, so Christ and the church are one spirit. Ephesians 5, 29 and 32, Genesis 2, 24. Thus the blessed God and Father of mercies has according to Peter granted to us very great and precious gifts in Christ. 2 Peter 1, 4, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, God of all comfort, who has blessed us, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. This inexpressible grace and blessing we long ago promised, it was long ago promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, and in thy seed. That is in Christ shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. We could go on and on, but he got it. He got it, and this is so counter to how we think it must be and should be. There's a simplicity to it that we can revolt against, saying, no, it's got to be more complicated than that. It's got to require more of me than falling at the feet of Jesus with nothing in my hand but my sin and my need. This is the gospel. This is the gospel as clearly as we can say it. If we had time, we would go through Romans chapter 4. And you would see that he goes to Abraham. Watch in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather? According to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as gifts, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness before, apart from works. Now David, here's the adulterer, the murderer, David, Yes, the man after God's own heart, though. And what does David depend on? Like Abraham, here in the Old Testament even. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin. From Psalm 32. That's how it all works. So it's not by works. It's by faith. It's by trust. 
And so he says it's not by works, it's not by ceremony. It's not because you walked an aisle, signed a card, raised a hand, were baptized, have taken the Lord's Supper, have recited certain words. Those things can be powerful means God uses in the process of our expressing our faith that he brings. But what the bottom line in all of it is faith. If you're depending on some outward ceremony, you're missing the point. That's where he goes on and says, no, it wasn't circumcision for the Jews, this central ceremony, this central outward observance. That was to show an inward reality by faith. Verse 12 of Romans 4. And to make him father Abraham of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So it's not works, it's not ceremony, it's not obeying the law. In verses 13 through 17, he points out that Abraham was declared righteous by God 430 years before the law was even given. He was circumcised almost 30 years after he was declared righteous. No, these things are confirmations of this faith that he has. Romans says, God does all these things for us in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And then finally, in chapter 4 at the end, 18 through 22, he says, it's not by works, it's not by ceremony, it's not by law keeping, and it's not by sight, it's not by just seeing what's before you. Verses 18 through 22, look at verse 20. Speaking of Abraham, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. And you may be sitting there saying, I've read Genesis. He did waver in his faith. So what's up with that? He did. And so do I. And so does every godly, mature believer in here. We recognize that faith is both something we trust in saving faith that begins our lives in Christ and then our daily lives are an outworking of that trust we've put in Jesus that now does define us even with our wavering, even with our wandering, even with our doubting, even with our failures. Even grave failures. David was still a man after God's own heart. After his grievous sin. And is called that because of his faith in God and God's promises. He did waver, but what he had deep down was a deep-seated permanent attitude of trust. Of overarching consistency in his relationship with God. That's what we end up having in our lives with him. Listen to Calvin. Let us remember that the condition of us all is the same as that of Abraham. All things around us, listen to this, all things around us are in opposition to the promises of God. We've got all this evidence that God's promises aren't true. Like what? He promises immortality, eternal life. Yet we're surrounded with with mortality and corruption. He declares that he counts us just, yet we are covered with sins. He testifies that he's propitious and kind toward us. Outward judgments, though, threaten his wrath. What then is to be done? We must, with closed eyes, pass by ourselves and all things connected with us that nothing may hinder or prevent us 
from believing that God is true. That's it. So we walk by faith, not by sight. And we depend on Him for everything then. Spurgeon put it this way, saving faith is an immediate relation to Christ, accepting, receiving, resting upon Him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of God's grace alone. And this has radical far-reaching implications for every moment of every day of our lives. We trust him. We trust him. And everything changes. What's the first thing that changes? Well, boasting goes away. Arrogance, pride goes away. The root of our sin problem, exalting ourselves over God and others, disappears. When you realize that before God, You come with nothing but unrighteousness and filthy rags. Where is the ground for boasting? Where is the arrogance then? Do you realize the way this kills off our pride? We are to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand and trust his saving work, turn away from our pride, our boasting, our self-reliance, renounce all efforts to show ourselves worthy, And trust God in what he's done. And this is the fundamental way God's glorified in our lives. The the last sola is soli deo gloria. And you need to realize how these work together. We trust scripture, not our experience or evidence we can muster today. We trust God. And we ultimately trust his grace, not what we do. And we access this by faith, not merit and contributing something to it. And this is in Jesus alone, not just our faith, but Jesus. He's the object of our faith. And this is the means by which God is fundamentally glorified. Apart from this, true glory of God doesn't happen. The glory of God is a gospel-wrought reality. It's something that flows from those who understand they come, who understand they come before God only because of what he's done for us. Boasting is excluded. God is glorified. It's all of Christ then. And then everything changes. Listen to Philippians 3. I count everything as rubbish, trash, refuse, that I may be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now our lives are freed to live with a reckless abandon, a confidence, a hope, a joy. That God has done it for us. Our greatest dilemma has been solved. So all the other things fall into place. And everything's different now. And we see our lives as now an expression of the confidence we have in God. How will he who gave us his own son, not with him, also graciously give us all things? That's why we don't have to strive after the things of this world. We can actually... Seek first the kingdom of God and trust him to add all these things to us. We can live so differently than we tend to. We can then start to live righteous lives. This idea that justification by faith alone then leads to people living however they want. And some people actually try to manipulate it in that way. Oh, I'm saved by faith, so I'll live like hell. That's never a conclusion someone who really understands the gospel comes to. When you understand that your sin has been forgiven by a righteous judge because of what he's done for you, then you say, I want to live for him. I want to live uh, what what Paul says in Philippians, I want to live up to what I've already obtained in Christ. 
I want to have what Paul says in Romans 1, 5. I want to have the obedience of faith. I want to have a righteous life. And now we live holy lives. We live righteous lives, grounded in faith, grounded in God's provision, in the power of the Spirit, no longer trying to earn something or prove something, but simply living out of faith and gratitude for what he's done for us. We have so many problems in our day. The solution to all of them fundamentally is justification by faith alone. My favorite rapper, Shailen says something that people scratch their heads over. He said, justification by faith alone is the only true solution to racism. (laughs) What? And they have nothing to do with... No, they do. They do. I'm not minimizing the importance of political and social means of doing things, but fundamentally, a human heart that hasn't been transformed and humbled by the true work of God for us in Christ will always end up ultimately seeking to exalt self over others and even self over God. When we're humbled before God, we're humbled before everybody. And we never put ourselves above anyone else for any reason whatsoever. And so God's glorified and we're freed and forgiven. And we can step out in faith and live with recklessness from the world's eyes with a kingdom boldness and exercise our faith in ways that are stunning. Because God promises, I will supply every one of your needs according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 puts it this way. What shall we say to these things, these gospel things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We now cannot just live lives of gratitude and righteousness. We can live lives of great faith, stepping out in boldness, realizing that if our great dilemma of sin is handled by God, he'll handle everything else, and we can follow him no matter where he leads. No matter where he leads. I was just talking to Rick Floyd this morning. Rick and Melanie Floyd got married and moved to a village like 14,000 feet in Peru. Had their first baby in a potato bin over there. And, and stepped out in faith and went to a people who thought they were crazy. Who are these white people coming in here and wanting to know about us? What, what would make anybody do something like that? I met a man. Could we show his photograph? Guys, um, this is Bailey Marks. Bailey and his wife Elizabeth. I look young there, don't I? That was not eight years ago, nine years ago. But um, that's Bailey Marks. Bailey Marks in 1967 had only been a Christian three years. And Bill Bright came to him who was starting Campus Crusade for Christ and said, Bailey and Elizabeth, I would like you to go to Asia and start a work there. He was a Christian three years, had three kids, had a really successful business he walked away from to go start a work for Campus Crusade in Asia. And he and his wife spent years there raising up 2,000 leaders in that Asian ministry. It's going to take a really long time for Bailey and Elizabeth to meet all the people who know Jesus because of their efforts that they took starting in 1967 after having been Christians only three years. I got to meet him. Don and I went to, to Budapest. Karen, there you go. We, we, we went to visit Jack and Karen in, in Budapest, and I was speaking this conference here, and I met Bailey Marks, and I said, Bailey, I, I tend to ask two questions to godly people. I said, how do you keep your faith alive and vibrant, and what's your concern for the coming generation? 
And the answers are typically from godly old people like this. Very simple. He said, walk with Jesus. That's how I keep my faith alive, resting in the word and prayer. And I said, what's your concern for the coming generation? I want to read his quote to you. Bailey Mark said this. I want them to believe God for big things, not just ordinary things. And it starts with praying. Here I am. What do you want me to do? My biggest concern for the coming generation is that they step out in faith and trust God for big things. And that kind of faith starts with saving faith in Jesus. When that's our anchor, the ship will be fine. And we can live lives of profound hope and faith, following him wherever he leads. Abraham left Ur to head to Cain in the promised land. Let's start heading to the promised land with more resolute faith than we've ever had before because God has done it for us in Christ. Lord, help us. We need help. We are a frail people. We're a distracted people. We're so influenced by so many uh, sources outside of your word. Lord, help us to be people who know how desperately we need a Savior. Help us to know how completely Jesus is that Savior. And I pray we would exercise faith in him. For anyone here this morning, Lord, who doesn't have saving faith in Jesus, I pray this would be the morning. They would say, not I but Christ, and turn from their sin and trust Jesus. For those of us who have come in here knowing Jesus, I pray that this would be a morning we look back on as a time in our lives where we started to take bold steps of faith and trust in you and live in hope and freedom and joy like never before because we're more confident than ever before that Jesus has done it. And we pray this in his name. Amen.